We are continuing our study in Colossians and uh, arrive today at Colossians chapter 3, and we will begin at verse 17. And as we are turning to the texts uh, and we open in prayer, we pray that the Lord will greatly bless our study of this text, and uh, we, we kind of anticipate what uh, is likely to be some very countercultural revelation in this passage. So let's pray together. Father, we come before you in the name of Christ, thankful that you give us the opportunity to gather together for the study of your word. And this morning as we do this, and we seek to turn word by word and verse by verse through your word, we pray that you open our eyes that we may see and open our hearts that we might not only receive but obey your word and we pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so we're just going to read the passage together, the pericope as it should hold together. Uh, we, have, we have one of those uh, somewhat anachronistic, uh, arbitrary chapter and verse divisions here. Not a problem. We understand that the only way we can actually turn to the text quickly is having these chapter and verse divisions but they are not a, not a part of the original text. But it is helpful for us to be able to say, uh, let's turn together to Colossians chapter 3, and we'll begin reading at verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Now, I warned us that we're getting into some difficult territory here. One of the first things we need to recognize is that the difficulty is a modern difficulty. So we just need to look each other in the eye and recognize that the awkwardness that we find in this text is a modern awkwardness. There's a tension in the text that is not a modern tension, but the awkwardness in the text is a modern awkwardness. At the time the New Testament was, was written by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, all of the relationships mentioned in this passage were normative, normal, and universally to be expected. First of all, you have the relationship between a husband and a wife, the relationship between parents and children, the relationship between slaves and their masters. There is clearly an awkwardness in this. We're going to have to look at it carefully. But first we need to step back for a moment and ask ourselves what kind of text this is. That's an important part of biblical interpretation. The conservative evangelical Protestant understanding of how to read the scripture is often summarized as the historical, grammatical interpretation of the text. 
And this means that it is, insofar as possible, the strict constructionist reading of the text. We want to understand what the Holy Spirit has revealed through the human authors of Scripture, and thus we're looking at the very words, we're, we're, we're looking at the letters, the grama, we're looking at the historical setting, we're looking at how the first community receiving this text would have understood it, the text itself is determinative, the historical context is informative, the historical grammatical understanding of the text is the, the Protestant Reformation way to move forward, as in the early church, it was the most straightforward way to read the Scripture. Now, that's contrasted with other ways of reading the Scripture. And one of them is what developed pretty early in the church as an unfortunate development, which was a, uh, a reading of the text that was basically allegorical. And that's certainly a way out of all kinds of binding passages. If you just say, okay, we're going to have an allegorical reading of the text, this means that, this means that, this means that. And the next thing you know, you've created a castle in the air of interpretation. So all throughout the medieval period of the church, you had some who were still continuing in an historical, grammatical understanding of the text, but frankly, they were pretty rare. That's why the Reformation was the recovery of that historical, grammatical way of understanding the text. Sola Scriptura implied that historical, grammatical way of understanding the text. But the Roman Catholic Church still very much committed to an allegorical understanding of the text that increasingly took sway. Then we come to the modern era, and we have a liberal way of understanding the text, which is basically the deconstruction of the text. That, that word did not come until later, but that's the methodology that was deployed. Okay, you ask, you look at a passage like this, and you don't ask, how can we, how must we obey this passage? You say, how can we deconstruct this passage to reveal oppression, uh, etc.? Just... It is obviously starting not from a position of the supernatural authority of the text. There's no Holy Spirit who's inspired the text. You're not talking about the inerrant and fallible Word of God. You're talking about a continuing, though fallible, Christian text. And it's assumed to be encoded with the prejudices of the past. So working backwards, the easiest way to deal with this passage is to be a Protestant liberal. So if we're Protestant liberals, no problem. If we're Protestant liberals, we look at this passage and we say, okay, all three relationships here, husband, wife, parents, children, slaves, masters, those are all patriarchal forms of, of oppression, and uh, we don't believe that that belongs in the Scripture. It's probably interesting that at historical moments this is what the church believed, but we can dispense with this. Move right on. As a matter of fact, you can do that with this text, but you can do it with any text. You can do it with Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. You simply say, John there sought to affirm the superiority of the message of Jesus by turning it into an exclusivity, and we know what John's strategy was, but we actually don't believe that. We believe basically in the and universalism. You can do this with passages that would say, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In his image, he created man and woman. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. 
Well, you can say, well, that, that was an ancient understanding because the only way they knew human beings could be defined is as male and female. We know better now. So we're not only liberating ourselves from all kinds of strictures that don't bear any divine imperative. We're now, we're now liberating ourselves from male and female. Obviously, you have the, the passages related to the relationships between women and men. You have the relationships uh, between insiders and outsiders in the church. You have passages very clear about human sexuality, and in particular that run directly into conflict with the LGBTQ agenda. But if you can relativize a text, you can relativize any text. So if you're a Protestant liberal, this is really good news. No text is binding on you because no text is the inerrant, infallible word of God. And so it's a human testimony. You're liberated from uh, obeying this text. We don't believe this is merely human testimony. We believe this is indeed the inerrant and infallible word of God, and it is obligatory to us. So we don't have that escape hatch, but we can understand how convenient it would be. There are churches right down the street here that do not feel at all obligated to talk about this text other than to say, we're skipping this, or we're going to denounce this. Allegory is not going to help us here either, And this is where the historical context and literary form basically doesn't allow the slightest bit of allegorization. So what do I mean by that? I mean, the categories here clearly mean exactly what they say. So there's just no way out of the fact that this refers to uh, um, uh, husbands and wives, parents and children, slaves and masters. Those are not allegorical stand-ins for anything else. They are what they are. So allegory just went out the window as any kind of legitimate possibility. The other background we have to consider here is that this kind of passage, it appears elsewhere. Passages very much like this. They're called household codes. They are common in the Greco-Roman world. Uh, Perhaps the earliest one you might think of and be familiar with is the one offered by Aristotle. So you have a summary of how right, good, proper is revealed in human relations. And thus you have to begin in the home. And so household codes are codes of ethics and codes of structure that just say the properly ordered house, the properly ordered marriage, the properly ordered family, the properly ordered community looks like this. So the household codes are common. But we don't have to look to Aristotle. And understanding the household codes, we understand that a good bit of the law of Israel in the Old Testament also relates to the same things. So we're not shocked that we would have here a command about honoring father and mother, obeying parents, because that's in the Decalogue, that's in the Ten Commandments, that's in the the Torah, that's in the law. And not only that, in great detail, everything covered in this passage is covered elsewhere in the Old Testament. This is in one sense, in the Apostle Paul, a New Testament gospel summary of relationships that have already been defined in the Old Testament. But this is, this is difficult territory. And by the way, it might have been Paul understood 
controversial. It might have been controversial in one sense in Colossae. It might have been controversial in another sense because of specific individuals we know. So look at the text. And in this case, we're going to look at chapter 4. We'll be looking at this more closely, but let's begin, let's just read at verse 7. Tychicus will tell you about my activities. He's a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. This letter is carried by a slave to Colossae. We know who Onesimus is. Onesimus is a slave. He is a slave to Philemon. And remember that Onesimus becomes a Christian, comes under the, the teaching of Paul, and Paul sends him back to Colossae, back to Philemon. Now, you'll recall he also writes to Philemon, and the main thing he wants to say to Philemon is, I'm sending Onesimus back, not as your slave, but as my brother in Christ. And you'll notice when Onesimus is described here in chapter 4, he's described as our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. So I want us to just anticipate that what we're going to find in this passage is going to remain awkward for us because of our times and some hard issues we're going to have to address. But the revolution in this passage is that there's reference here to a slave named Onesimus, who is now a believer and a part of the church. The revolution is that Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, both to Philemon in the letter that will follow, and here in the letter to the Colossians, Onesimus conveyed, there's the revolutionary message that the primary thing Christians know about a slave who's come to know the Lord Jesus Christ is that he is our brother. There is no precedent for this in ancient literature. There's, there's nothing. The household codes have no category for this. Now, we know we have a passage in Galatians that speaks to this already, but just remember what we saw when we were last together in chapter 3, verse 11, speaking of the church. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So when Paul says there's no more male, female, slave, free, he doesn't mean the categories have disappeared. Certainly not in terms of biological categories. He doesn't even mean that the category of fathers and mothers, and children, that doesn't apply. He's saying they are no longer ultimate. They are no longer primary. The primary thing is that believers in Christ are brothers and sisters in Christ, period, regardless of earthly designation, regardless of male and female, slave and free. 
So here we understand a little bit better of what Paul was talking about in verse 11. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all in all. Well, then we're going to have to get into the difficult specificity of what that looks like. Remember verse 17, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So even in introducing this, Paul says, just remember, we're thankful to God for every word of Scripture. We're thankful to God. We are, we are concerned to glorify God and to obey him with thanksgiving. You're giving thanks to the Father through Christ who want to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. And everything means our most personal relationships and that means what defines our household. Now, in the ancient world, the household was the most basic unit. In the way we should think of the household here as the most basic unit, the difference is that in the ancient world, the household unit was more then than now an economic unit. Still is in pre-modern societies. Still is in early modern societies economically defined where you have, say, a blacksmith shop, where you have a farm, you have a, a business of making fabric, whatever it is, the household was a factory, the household was an office, the household was, you know, a business, because the family was not only just related by biology, but, by, but related by economic productivity. So these household codes were not just about who lives in that house, but, but what enterprise this is. These household codes start in one place, and that is with marriage. Another common grace affirmation of creation order. If you're going to start describing society, where do you start describing society? City? State, nation, no, you're going to have to start defining society at its most basic unit. This is the Christian principle of subsidiarity. The greatest truth subsides in the lowest unit, the most basic unit of society. The most basic unit of society is where Scripture begins. Therefore, a man shall leave his mother and father and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So marriage is the beginning of civilization. It's the beginning of civilization in Genesis. It's the beginning of civilization everywhere. You're going to talk about a household code as the center of civilization. You've got to start with marriage. This is where Paul starts. Verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Well, we're either going to understand this, affirm this, obey this or not. There is no question that in the Old Testament and in the New, the picture of the family starts with the paterfamilias, the husband, father, as the leader of the family. There are headship issues that are clearly revealed in Scripture. There are responsibility issues clearly revealed in Scripture. Modern feminism rejects this categorically. It just can't be possible. There cannot be a natural order of things in which a wife is to submit to her husband. 
Now, we must say immediately, there are, according to Scripture, rightful illustrations of submission and wrongful illustrations of submission. They're rightful pictures of what it means to be a husband. They're wrongful pictures of what it means to be a husband. But the point is that in the natural order, the creation order of things, there is a role for the husband in the family. There's a role for the husband in the marriage that he must take and he must fulfill if there's going to be a rightly ordered cosmos in this family. And it begins with the father. It just does. It's it's Adam who leaves his mother and father and cleaves to Eve, his wife. There's a priority here. Now, that priority, you know, again, you don't have to get into deep natural law reasoning to figure this out. Something's been learned, basically, in the modern revolt. The modern revolt against this as a possibly right mandatory order. This, uh, the modern revolt says there's no essential difference between men and women. This is just patriarchy. It's just oppression. It's just prejudice. It must be overcome. It's wrong. It's evil. There's no inherent natural distinction between men and women other than merely biological. That brings me to Claudia Golden. Claudia Golden's not in the New Testament. She won the Nobel Prize days ago for economics, which isn't actually the Nobel Prize for economics. It's a prize for economics awarded in the name of Alfred Nobel, but everybody calls it the Nobel Prize in economics, so there it is. Claudia Golden has taught economics at Harvard for decades and is a specialist doing massive research in trying to answer the question, why is there a difference in lifetime income between men and women? And she is a very careful, extremely careful economist. Her, uh, her work is greatly respected. She's been spending decades isolating the question. And so you can start by saying, okay, here's a, uh, here's a man who's an ophthalmologist, and here's a woman who's an ophthalmologist, a medical doctor with a specialization of the eye. If you, if you look at lifetime earnings, on average, male ophthalmologists have a significant economic advantage over female ophthalmologists. It's an interesting question. So she began by saying, okay, you just take the average man and the average woman, but she recognized that's not particularly helpful because they could be in different jobs. You know, a lot of women could be in jobs that pay less. A lot of men could be in jobs that pay more. So she isolated, okay, well, what if they have the same job? And and a part of her research for which she just won the Nobel Prize was to say, when you level it out such that you have men and women with the same education and the same job, there still is a differential there's, st- there's still a significant differential. So she's been spending her life trying to figure out what that differential is. You may have figured out what that differential is. That differential is a baby. That differential is children. And so as you look at the way the marketplace works in terms of income, you know, if you, if, if you are in the, in the office, so to speak, and you have an, an unbroken career of 40 years and you retire, 
that's different than someone who began in the same place but then exits from the professional context for some length of time, and maybe not a complete exit, maybe it's, you know, cutting back hours or whatever, and, and so there's just no question that every single baby is a disproportionate cost when it is compared with the father and the mother measured by professional income. It just is, and it's, it's unbroken, and the modern world has not done much to fix that. Now, just to look at the response to Claudia Golden, and I'm not going to do the briefing here. I am going to talk about this, Lord willing, in the next couple of days. Liberals like Claudia Golden because she points and proves the differential. But conservatives respect Claudia Golden because she just collects the data and it's not driven by ideology. She just says, okay, this is what it is. Feminists are extremely frustrated that the care of a baby falls disproportionately on women. All that's to say, there are ontological differences between the man and the woman, not just physical differences, there are ontological differences. There's a different role and function. You either believe that or you don't. But you have a secular society that wants to say, whatever distinction there is, we have the task of overcoming. And, and by the way, if you look at this research, you come to realize it's virtually impossible actually to overcome this. You can think of all the Scandinavian places where people think, okay, equality's there. Well, it still is a reality that infants and small children need far more attention from mother. That has economic consequences. The other thing that's been discovered, and in this case it's not so much Claudia Golden, but others is that there's something about the male structure, there's something about the male role, there's something about the male psyche in which if you tell men you don't have to do this, here's a news alert. They stop doing it. So if you tell men they don't have to fulfill this role, that they, their first responsibility is not as paterfamilias, that their first responsibility is not as husband, their first responsibility is not as father, and that boys don't have to be raised in order to understand that their first responsibility is to be husband, their first responsibility is to be father, then guess what? They'll hear it and they won't. And so one of the unexpected results of second-wave feminism is not so much that women have advanced as a lot of men have simply unplugged. And what in every society has been a boy crisis, and every society had a boy crisis, in human history, societies don't have girl crises, they have boy crises. The question is how to get boys into a functional manhood. That's been a, a struggle for every society. But it certainly is clearer when the society says, hey, buddy, before you get to anything else, here's the deal. You are to grow up and become mature and productive and disciplined so that you are pater familias because the whole civilization depends upon that. Your wife will depend upon that. Your children will depend upon that. The larger society depends upon 
young men becoming husbands and fathers and channeling that energy into responsibility. And if that doesn't happen, the society becomes dissolute. Paul begins, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. In other words, as is fitting. It's not just a categorical statement. Here in Ephesians, Paul makes clear this is as is fitting in the Lord. And then in verse 19, similar to what you find in Ephesians, husbands love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, what's interesting here is that in Ephesians, this is a longer passage related to husbands and wives. In this particular household code, as, he, as Paul is writing to the Colossians, he makes reference to this very clear language, wives submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands love your wives and do not be harsh with them. There is no further elaboration. That is not the main issue in the three relationships that Paul's concerned with in this letter. But remember, there's a second, so it's going to be Husbands, wives, and thus mother, father. It's going to be children and parents, and it's going to be slaves and masters. The second one is children and parents. Verse 20, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. So it's a statement of restriction and a statement of paterfamilias, a statement of, of creation order. There's a creation order distinction between children and parents. And that's a creation order distinction that isn't accidental. This is God's plan. And God actually assigns to parents a covenant responsibility to raise their children as if the home is the cosmos that God has created. Every home is a tiny, small cosmos in which things have to be rightly related for things to go well and for the creator to receive glory. Not a creator of the giant cosmos. He's the creator of your cosmos as a husband and a wife. Therefore, what God has put together, let no man put asunder. This is God doing this. This is a small cosmos. In this cosmos, the planets have to be in right orbit. And the right orbit in the home is that children obey parents. Now, once again, you come to understand that in creation order, when we, when we factor in the fall... Cosmos is trying to come apart, and that's true inside the family, where children will want to rule because they're born little would-be rulers. It is the mother and the father's responsibility as parents to put down that insurrection and to discipline children in the Lord and hold them under authority. And it is the task of children to obey their parents and not the other way around. And you notice it says here in everything. For this pleases the Lord. So again, this is creation order. The creator has said this is the way it is to be. But then again, Paul comes back in verse 21. Just as in verse 19, he said, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. The, the center of marriage is not authority. The center of marriage is love, devotion. Same thing with children. Fathers, notice this, address two fathers. Do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. It's a sweet passage, lest they become discouraged. Children in the rightly ordered home learn to obey their parents and learn to enjoy the status of obeying their parents. They learn to trust their parents. They know their parents 
immeasurable love and devotion and protection to them, and thus they learn to obey their parents in a way that honors the Lord. Where this breaks down and fathers provoke their children, well, the cosmos is disrupted by sinful distortion. It's a sweet passage when you think about it. Fathers, don't provoke your children. In other words, be a model to them by your devotion and love, and yes, even by your discipline and authority of what it means to have the right order in the entire cosmos, where fathers are arrogant and provoking, argumentative, unpredictable. One of the worst things in fathering or parenthood is to be unpredictable. But notice something else. It's not just fathers, because hearkening back to the Ten Commandments, it's children obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. And then fathers, because this is a particular, particular command here. It's not by accident. This is the Holy Spirit. Fathers, do not provoke your children unless they become discouraged. Then in verse 22, slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Straightforward, the category of the slave and the master. Now, as Paul was writing this, he would have to be straightforward because everyone in the ancient world, in the Greco-Roman world, everyone would have known exactly what Paul's talking about. The household would have included not only the husband and the wife, the mother, the father, and the children, but also other members of the oikomenia, uh, the, 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 the household. This is very important. We're at, as I said, we're at a decision point. Do we trust God and his word or not? A couple of things for us to understand. The Bible nowhere, and in particular, let's speak of the New Testament, nowhere institutionalizes slavery. The Bible nowhere commands slavery. But it is very fair to say that the New Testament message did not say it is the mission of the church to bring slavery to an end. It is the mission of the church in Colossae to tell slaves to revolt against their masters. I don't often say this, so don't tweet this. But a man who's helpful to us, I think, in understanding this is named Karl Marx. As you recall, even in the Communist Manifesto, Karl Marx and Frederick Engels, his co-authors, are, you know, workers of the world unite, you have nothing to lose but your chains. That's how the Communist Manifesto began. I was in London, Mary and I were in London just days ago, very close to the old British library where Karl Marx hid himself away in his stinky clothes. Yeah, that's how he's described by the people in the library, was stinky. Uh, in his stinky clothes, you know, coming up with the ideology of Marxism. 
So Marx and Engels begin the Communist Manifesto, workers of the world unite, you have nothing to lose but your chains. Okay, so if chains are there, then the implication of Karl Marx, and this is very clear in Das Kapital, his, his, his bigger issue, this is central to classical Marxism, which is a wage employment structure is just another form of slavery. Now, I'm not saying that a wage employment arrangement is the same thing as slavery. I'm not a Marxist. But it is interesting that to a Marxist, any employment context is a form of slavery. So if you were to go to the Ford plant, truck plant in Louisville, where the strike reached this week, I'm not going to go into the UAW strike. I'm simply going to say, Marx would say, the distinction between the employers in that truck plant out on the East End and slaves on a plantation is a difference of degree, not a difference of kind. I don't believe that. But I do think it's important to recognize that there are those very powerful forces in our society who would extend exactly what we're talking about here simply to employ your employee. And there's a sense in which we understand that any relationship that could be a relationship of employment or slavery, which is categorically different but structurally similar, there are principles here to which we need to pay attention. Paul, we know, is sending Onesimus back to Philemon, but he's also writing to Philemon saying that what he's encouraging him to do is to receive Philemon back, not primarily as a slave, but as a brother in Christ. This, this is the revolution. The revolution in slavery that we find here is not a revolution. We need to be honest. It's not a revolution that says the gospel puts an end to slavery. Now, we do believe the logic of the gospel certainly is incompatible with a race-based form of slavery, but... We don't believe that the New Testament gospel is incompatible with a situation of relative, very dramatic at times, economic difference. Paul sends Onesimus back, but the big issue for Philemon and the big issue for the church is what you see right here, where we are no longer to think of slave and free as if they are categories of the in and the out. We're to understand as the Apostle Paul will make clear in this passage and amplify elsewhere, that the main relationship between brothers and sisters in Christ is simply that. Inside the church, there's no distinction between slave and free. Inside the church, there should be no distinction between the, uh, you know, the wage master and the wage worker. That, that, that's, that's extraneous. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. That does not eliminate the external categories it doesn't eliminate the categories being so important that the Apostle Paul mentions them here. By the time we get to the United States and the experience of slavery in the United States and eventually concentrated in the American South, the divisive issue in our, our history, the evil of that is compounded by the fact that it's not just an economic situation, it was race-based chattel slavery. In other words, it was the, it was the slave trade and the argument was that certain people simply by skin color deserve to be slaves. So there you have a compounding of evil as you add the scriptural worldview up and understand the points of 
the points of sin and sinfulness and the institutionalization of sinfulness that was in what we think, first of all, is slavery, we just need to understand that economists would look at the word slavery looking far past even that, even to the existence of entire nations, including those identified as the Slavs, from which we get the word slave, it's a different thing. And again, the Marxist would say it's just a slight difference when you look through human history and now you get to the modern factory. And of course, now the Marxists are working on contract law and doing Marxist analysis of what it means to be uh, say, a uh, software engineer working from home. Paul's concern here is not macroeconomics. It's not world history. It's the household of faith that begins in the household. The household of faith cannot be healthy if the households in the household of faith are not healthy and holy. This is the picture of how that is to be arranged I go back just to read this for context. Slaves obey in everything. So it's, it's the same thing, that, by the way, that's used in verse 30 of children obeying your parents in everything. The in everything is still there. Those who are your earthly masters. And then this, this passage, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, that's just you know superficial, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. And so there's an understanding that the God is our... That, that, that God is our ultimate master. That's made clear in verse 33, 23. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Verse 34, 24. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Okay, so this transcends anything as controversial or converted, uh, difficulty, controverted as as slavery, and, and just points to our role in society, even as employees, regardless of title, but it, it is our task here to work as unto the Lord, and, and knowing that it is ultimately from the Lord that we'll receive an inheritance. For we are ultimately serving the Lord Christ. That's just a really sweet, important, necessary thing for us to know. We are ultimately serving Christ. We all have employers. We're all accountable to people. Um, it, it may be proximate. It may be distant. But the Apostle Paul says, insofar as we are rightly understanding our role, we're serving Christ. We're serving Christ in the multiplicity of roles. We're serving Christ in the multiplicity of professions. We're serving Christ in the multiplicity of industries and services. But ultimately, we are we are serving Christ. And that, that's twofold in, in its meaning. So first of all, it has to mean in the giant ochumin, in the giant economy. This is be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The, 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 the labor assignment, the, the work assignment, to, to till the soil. In other words, we're still fulfilling a Genesis assignment in working. So in the big sphere of things is that, is that dominion economy to which we're called, but then it's in the small, it's in the small dimension, you know, where we are, we're working in this context, we're working in that context. We're helping to build a house, we're helping to make a car, you know, we're, we're helping to raise, you know, to educate children, we're, we're helping to make 
curtains. We're weaving fabric for clothes. We're do- all, all these things are a part of the economy. And ultimately, because Christ is Lord of all, we as Christians know we are serving the Lord Christ. Verse 25 appears to be disjunctive. It's just, it just, what is this? For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. So the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there's no partiality. Well, if it was just the wrongdoer will be repaid what the wrongdoer has done, you might say, well, that sounds like an interruption. And then it reminds me of my mother. I do not mean any disrespect. None. Godly mother, I miss so much. But she would interrupt topic A with topic B, which to a son was very perplexing. Because I thought we were talking about A, but now we're talking about B. Sometimes later she would say, you know, I told you about B. And I said, well, we were talking about A. Yeah, but I put B in there. Now, part of this is just the mother-son dynamic. We had a wonderful relationship. I honor my mom, wonderful, godly mom. But at times, I had no idea how many things we just talked about. Was that one thing? Or was that a bunch of things? I'd find out later. Paul here is really just talking about one thing. He isn't all of a sudden just interjecting uh, for the wrong to be paid back for the wrong he has done as if, you know, okay, this is just like great overarching moral principle. Just remember that. No, it's it's the last phrase that explains why it is where it is and how we are to understand it. For the wrongdoer would be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Okay, that's it. That's what the Apostle Paul meant when he said there's no longer male-female, there's no longer slave-free, there's no longer partiality. In in, in the kingdom, in the church, in in the economy of God, there is no partiality. In, In heaven, there will be no more a greater and lesser. There will be no more lording over someone else. No one's going to be working for anyone else in heaven. All will be completely subsumed, all the redeemed, in the unceasing work of the glorious work of the glory of God. And this is just the Apostle Paul saying, look, the rules apply to everybody. The wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. There's no partiality. If the slave does wrong, God will judge. If the slave owner does wrong, God will judge. If the child does wrong, God will judge. If the parent does wrong, God will judge. If the wife does wrong, God will judge. If the husband does wrong, God will judge. And in there, in that judgment, there will be no partiality. It's good for us to know. The world is filled with partiality, and sometimes it seems to be a necessary partiality. Sometimes it's an arbitrary partiality, but... That partiality does not extend into heaven. Last verse is addressed not to slaves but to masters. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly. This last passage is so important, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. The New Testament will describe all believers as slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. Duloi, slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have different distinctions here on earth. Some of these are rightful distinctions. All of these are distinctions that call for our understanding of how the Christian 
the Christian home and the Christian church are to be ordered. There's an order in the, in the family between the husband and the wife, between the parents and the children, between those others of the family who are a part of the household. There's a distinction. But in heaven, there is no such distinction. In the now and the then, there's a distinction about the erasure of distinctions. We're in the now. Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is trying to help the Colossians to understand how to be faithful now with Onesimus, one who's carrying the letter, along with a letter written to his master Philemon. This is not just a theoretical, hypothetical issue. There are things we'd like to know behind and then after this text we don't know now. But this is the word of God addressed to us that in this life we will be faithful. Hard things for us to consider, but then again when you look at this passage, most of it is pretty easy to understand. This is the word of God for us. Our task is to obey it. Let's pray. Father, we're just so thankful for all you've given us in your word in this passage. Father, may to the fullest we live out obedience to this word and father help us to know how to do so not only in deed but in spirit not only in word but in truth we pray this in the name of christ amen